overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. We're going to go live in three, two, one. We are live with the Preventive Medicine Podcast. In today's episode, we welcome Dr. Austin Baraki. Austin is a physician specializing in internal medicine at a teaching institution in San Antonio, Texas. He attended medical school at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. Dr. Baraki is also the co-founder of Barbell Medicine, which he started with friend and former classmate, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Some areas of interest for Austin Um, include application of strength training in the context of complex medical conditions, sarcopenia, pain, neuroscience, and uh, rehabilitation, as well as cognitive and sports psychology. So thank you for uh, joining us today, Dr. Baraki. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, how are you doing today? (laughs) Doing all right. Um, Just in between uh, periods of time on the the inpatient wards, so I'm wrapping up my little break period, and then I go back refreshed and, and ready to go. So how about you guys? Nice. Good thing we're doing pretty good, hanging in there, given the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. just kind of doing this online med school thing, which is yeah. super weird. But I, I'm curious how it's going to be when I get uh, the new interns coming in in July, who maybe haven't seen a patient in like five or six months. But we'll see. Uh, we'll it's see gonna be it's gonna be it might be rough for your uh, for your senior <laughs> resident there for a couple months. Yes, that's yeah. my, that's what I'm anticipating. So Austin, uh, a lot of what you do outside of the two weeks when you're on that inpatient medicine is barbell medicine, correct? So yeah, can you tell yeah. us a little bit about what barbell medicine is, why you decided to start it, and like what the goals of that company are? Yeah, sure. So I won't take credit as being a, a co-founder. It was uh, entirely founded by my by my friend uh, Jordan, who he mentioned earlier. But uh, pretty early on in the process, when we uh, ran into each other in medical school and realized that we had this shared uh, interest, you know, we started working together, and that progressively increased over time. Um, so this was, um, I guess, it would have been probably around like 2013, 12, 13 time frame, something like that. Um, and so the idea, you know, we came from, uh, and kind of an athletic background and had gotten into lifting weights. And as we went through the medical education and started to see more situations where kind of the exercise and lifestyle medicine, quote unquote, uh, side of things could be applied to, to benefit patients while at the same time seeing that it was probably being underemphasized relative to its, uh, importance. Um, and so we kind of set out to serve as public communicators of this stuff. In other words, if their own doctors weren't uh, up on this stuff, then we were going to try to um, deliver that message uh, as broadly as we can to the general public, while at the same time also, you know, by virtue of having attained this level of, of training and the professional degrees and things like that, that gives us some degree of like unique access to actually deliver the message to other clinicians as well, because they're more likely to listen to colleagues and things like that on, on, on these matters. So hopefully trying to influence both sides from the healthcare side and hoping that that might work its way up to broader kind of like, 
uh, uh, policy type things and 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 uh, and uh, more public recommendations, as well as reaching the lay public on the importance of some of this stuff to improve um, public health outcomes. Mm-hmm. Are you able to uh, actually? So I know a lot of it is coaching through Bobo Medicine, um, but when you're only when you're on like inpatient rounds, are you able to get people to talk about resistance training then, or is that kind of uh, not the goal at that point? <laughs> Yeah, so I think you know in a lot of in a lot of situations that's not necessarily the most immediate uh, the most immediate concern for somebody's like you know life or death. Yeah, obviously, scenario. somebody yeah. comes in and in in septic shock, you're not worried about how much they can squat necessarily. But <laughs> in the back of my mind, I am thinking you know after this septic shock gets resolved, how much they can squat does kind of matter because that might influence where they end up going. You know, we end up we start deciding about where a patient is going to be you know going post hospitalization based at the time they get admitted. And I try to do that assessment pretty early. And, you know, that might be a situation where I immediately know, unfortunately, this person doesn't have the physical capacity and they're going to end up having to go to, to a nursing home, which is less than ideal in, in many situations um, uh, versus, oh, this person's in great shape. Once we get this resolved, they're going to be able to go back home to their independent life again. And so while, you know, we're not necessarily talking about it up front at the time that they come in super sick, potentially, it is a pretty regular discussion where we're talking about, you know, what is their physical capacity? If you were to give them recommendations, what might those look like? Are you the intern, medical student, et cetera, aware of what the physical activity recommendations would be? Because the same people that I'm training in the internal medicine residency, you know, they also have outpatient uh, blocks and they have a continuity clinic and things like that. So it's like, let's say that you're going to do this patient's hospital follow up. What kind of things might you be discussing with respect to their, you know, if they're if they come in telling you, man, after that ICU stay, I've had a lot you know, harder time getting in and out of chairs you know, getting in and out of my house, getting in and out of my car, et cetera, what kind of, how would you approach that problem? So there are a whole host of ways that we can work it into the clinical discussion, regardless of where we are, whether outpatient, inpatient, ICU, et cetera. And that's kind of what I try to do is I work it in with the teams and also with the patients themselves, because I might, you know, uh, do a little sit to stand test with a patient at the bedside. And when I see they can't stand up, then that might prompt a discussion of, um, you know, how come, what can we do about this? You know, what kind of things do you want to be able to do? How can we get there? Things like that. Pulling a little mini motivational interviewing intervention at the bedside <laughs> can be can be useful. Makes sense. So. With all these other interests you have specifically, you know, we're talking about weightlifting or powerlifting, that sort of athletic background. What made you choose internal medicine versus something that's more, you know, like ortho, bro? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. or PM&R. Okay, <laughs> PM&R in there for yeah, that's, yeah. No, PM, PM&R is, is legit. Uh, or it has the potential to be legit if, if people go about it the right way, I would say. Um yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of funny going through a lot of the clinical rotations, uh, sometimes walking in the assumption, uh, uh, was that I was going to go into ortho just cause I like lifted weights and, and I wouldn't say that my, um, ultimate, uh, path into inter- internal medicine was related to my prior, like athletic history. It was strictly, uh, my personality and thinking style and things like that. I mean, I'm, um, personally, I just really enjoy knowing a lot about a lot of things. 
and being able to explain the physiology, the pathophys, the pharmacologic mechanisms, the microbiology, whatever is going on. I like having a real deep understanding of that. And I like the process, I think probably in internal medicine, the process of differential diagnosis is like my favorite thing. When I can sit down with a student or an intern or a resident or whatever, and we have a, a patient presentation that might be vague or nonspecific or a bit nebulous up front. And we can work backwards through the physiology to figure out what are all the possibilities, where are all the steps that where this could go wrong. And that might guide our subsequent evaluation and management. Um, so thinking through those possibilities is like what I really enjoy doing and teaching people to think that way is pretty enjoyable as well. Um, and on the other hand, I am, uh, about as strongly, disinterested in procedural medicine as you can get. <laughs> uh, I definitely hate everything about the OR. And so that was not a place where I was going to end up uh, in under, I would, I would sooner leave medicine than, than end up working in an OR. <laughs> really? It's that bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just, so, not, just not a fan. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually really interesting that someone has um, interests that are kind of not necessarily like diverging on opposite ends of the spectrum, but just like so much about internal medicine is not necessarily related to what you do through barbell medicine and knowing a lot about the internal medicine side of things and just whatever goes into internal medicine and like barbell and strength sports and nutrition, all that is kind of, it's just a very broad amount of knowledge. And I think it's very unique that you have perspective that you can take from both sides and apply it to um, either your inpatient uh, patients when you're seeing them on rounds or taking your inpatient knowledge and then maybe applying it to some people you coach potentially. I don't know if you do that at all. I'm sure the perspective is beneficial at least. Um, do you think that more physicians, uh, that do not lift weights can learn from barbell medicine, what they're doing, or do you think they should like go to your seminar or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the, the, there might be a bit of a, a branding issue there in that when when you call it barbell medicine, that might pigeonhole us a little bit in terms of what people might uh, think that we do compared to, to what we actually do, which is a whole lot broader than just like lifting weights. So, um, you know, the seminar that we teach is two days long. There's a whole bunch of lecture and there's actual, you know, uh, uh, lifting education coaching that happen. But the overall themes that run through the seminar and the themes that run through all the other things that we do, the content that we put out educational material that we produce are, I, I would say that they're revolve around three major kind of, uh, uh pillars. The, the first is kind of our idea of, of health and what health is. And where there's been debates over the decades and centuries about what health is. And one of the more recent definitions that we like is, is that health is the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of physical, emotional, and social stressors. And that idea of being able to adapt and self-manage is probably a novel concept with respect to health compared to what a lot of people might think of. They might think of it as like, Oh, you got good blood pressure or something like that. Right. <laughs> Um, whereas the the idea of self-efficacy as a, a, a theme for for an for a healthy, robust individual to be able to take care of themselves in the majority of situations where that's feasible. Obviously, we don't expect them to, to self-manage their like ARDS or something like that. But um, <laughs> but in general, that concept is one overarching theme that we want to try to educate and empower people within their own kind of psychosocial, socioeconomic context to be able to do as much as they can, either for themselves or for their community, things like that. The second would be view understanding how complicated most phenomena are. And in particular, when it comes to humans, uh, uh, the probably 
the one of the best ways that we have to view this, although itself still limited, is is kind of a biopsychosocial approach where we understand the physiology and the biology, which is obviously I enjoy a whole lot, but also understanding that, you know, when we're dealing with people, we're dealing with psychology, we're dealing with their own socioeconomic context, which presents not, you know, new things that we need to think about and consider and that influence our plan, even if the underlying biology is the same between two different cases, differences in the psychosocial context that those two cases are in can wildly alter what you end up doing or recommending for that person. Um, and take so avoiding that reductionist uh, uh, perspective on things where you might isolate uh, somebody down to um, their ejection fraction, uh, instead realizing that they're a human and that maybe their medication adherence for their low ejection fraction is really complicated um, and, and is due to a whole host of factors that need to be considered and we need to give them the self-efficacy to be able to self-manage that. Um, and then the third to tie all those things together is just the idea that most of this stuff that we're doing and promoting has to do with behavior change and how we go about promoting behavior change effectively. Um, there's obviously a lot from a clinician standpoint, things you need to know, be aware of, as well as communication strategies, delivering narratives to, to your patients in ways that resonate with them and that will most effectively move them through these kind of uh, the stages of change as far as like a, a model that we have to conceptualize it. Although, of course, it's even more complicated than discrete stages. But um, being able to communicate uh, with people at their level to, to help guide them through the process um, is is a, a very difficult skill set to develop and I think is also underemphasized in the course of medical training. So those are kind of like the big three themes that we have in our content. And I definitely would say that across the spectrum of physician specialties, uh, you know, regardless of what field you end up going into, those are overall good things to be aware of uh, and, and potentially even competent with, depending on your degree of, you know, direct patient interaction, you know, like a, like a hematopathologist's abilities to effectively perform motivational interviewing, not necessarily the most critical thing, but at the same time, you know, recognizing that they're, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, a, a person on the other side of that slide, uh, <laughs> might still have some, some utility. Mm -hmm, um, sure. and, and of course, you know, now we're seeing these days with, with pandemic medicine where people are getting pulled across specialty lines and all kinds of things, you know, there's, there's not no situation where these skills would be uh, a waste of time or, or, uh, unhelpful. So we definitely recommend, um, getting familiar and comfortable with these ideas. And we've designed the seminar to be accessible to both lay people and to be useful for clinicians as well. And that was kind of my next question is, do you find, uh, you know, having, having been to one of the seminars myself, I can definitely speak to how much it, it helped my knowledge base in terms of going forward, forward as, as a doctor in training. Um, but do you feel like as you do more and more seminars, the, that the population of them starts to trend one way or the other in terms of, you know, lay people versus professionals? I think we're seeing a pretty consistent composition. Um, you know, we're probably seeing about three quarters lay people, one quarter, uh, healthcare professionals, and that might nudge a little bit one way or the other you know, seminar by seminar, depending on, on the location. Um, uh, but I, but I think that, you know, we've only been doing it for, let's see, maybe two ish years, something like that. And so there's definitely a long way, uh, to go in the future. And if we can, you know, we, we may end up in a situation where we need to split them off into two separate deals, one for healthcare professionals exclusively and, and one for lay people. I'm not sure yet how, what direction that'll go, but, um, obviously the people who do come through from the healthcare side, they end up, um, leaving very enthusiastic and excited about this stuff and, and ready to help spread some of those ideas in their own local areas, which has been cool. And then additionally, sometimes they have then that has then prompted them to maybe invite us to go speak at their respective institutions or places, which has also helped spread uh, some of these ideas uh, even more, which has been great. For sure. So as we kind of break into the more, I guess, preventive medicine side of this interview and kind of get into some, some of the meat here, um, 
there are definitely a lot of kind of silly ideas surrounding the the term preventive medicine and just I, I guess in medicine in general there's just a lot of uh, interesting probably bad ideas out there especially when we're talking about you know nutrition supplements body care whatever you want to say for I guess preventive health so uh, what is your view in terms of balancing the evidence or the database with you know things that recommendations that we make in terms of preventive health yeah i mean you alluded to a few things that are commonly discussed these days that can be that can be silly and and i really don't think there's much of a counter argument here as far as why it's important to have data to guide our recommendations all you really need to do is look back through medical history um if you look at any really any point prior to you know mid 20th century uh, medicine and probably in another 50 or 100 years we'll look back on the current time period and say similar things but if you look back through medical history we have done some absolutely preposterously stupid stuff uh, to, to either treat patients or under the guise of preventing uh, uh, issues from arising. You look through, you look back to, you know, the history of, of the four humors as like a guiding framework for medicine that existed for like hundreds of years that people were doing all kinds of things, none of which were effective. Uh, but we continued to justify based on our observations that maybe this patient got better uh, uh, you know, after we did something and assumed some causation and then another patient died after we did that thing. And we like, you know, buried that one away and, and didn't pay as much attention to it <laughs> that led to the perpetuation, a lot of these pseudoscientific ideas over time until the point where we realized like, Oh, we need to maybe do some research on this stuff that can control for some of our observational biases. Um, and so as that movement grew throughout the, you know, the 20th century, we've started to debunk more and more things that are ineffective, but it's like a Hydra. Every time you knock down one thing, uh, either the person who's doing it doesn't change their mind because there's, they say, Oh, you know, in my experience, it appears to work, which are, have been, have been quoted as like the three most dangerous words in medicine is, is in my experience. Um, or uh, a whole bunch of new silly pseudoscientific treatments emerge, particularly as technology progresses. You know, we get new new technology. People view high tech things as like cutting edge, more potent, more likely to help. You get augmented placebo effects. They do something, they feel great, and then suddenly they're sold on the need for this new treatment that may have no basis in reality or physiology or evidence or something like that. And so, um, I mean, I think that. That also represents a failure to recognize uh, how much harm we have the potential to do to people. Um, one thing that I definitely try to emphasize, I mean, every time I'm on wards, it doesn't, you, you don't, you guys have already seen it in your rotations. I'm, I'm quite sure you don't have to be in this uh, uh, world very long before you start encountering iatrogenic harms. Um, and every time I go on service, you know, there's some fraction of the inpatient service that is involves admissions due to iatrogenic events, right? Even if it's things that were all standard of care, like, oh, this patient has AFib, they got put on an anticoagulant, and now they're here with a GI bleed. Like, yeah, that's technically iatrogenic, even though they merited, you know, it, the decision was uh, deemed that the benefits outweighed the risks, they're here for bleeding, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and there are just boatloads of those kind of things. And so I always point out to them to recognize, hey, you recognize this is an iatrogenic harm. We did this to this person um, so that people can, so that the, the students and interns and residents can start to actually understand um, 
how much responsibility they have in this with their recommendations. Um, so it's one thing to cause some iatrogenic harm when we have ample evidence and data to say that the benefits outweigh the risks. For example, in that AFib example, maybe their chads vasc was like seven and they needed the anticoagulant, even if they were at high bleeding risk. And you're like, well, that's kind of the way this thing shakes out. And sometimes it, sometimes it be like that. Um, <laughs> alternatively, if it's a situation where there's no evidence to guide your decision making and you still recommend something and it causes harm, that's on you. That's like a big deal. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one that you can shrug your shoulders about it, but you know, when you, when you started this uh, thing and you guys went and you did your, I guess you probably still did white coat ceremonies and you took it no. up to do, to do no harm. That's, that's a, that's the first thing you said was before I do anything else, I'm going to try to do no harm. And so having data behind your recommendations whenever possible, um, is super important. And when you don't, that needs to be an open, you know, uh, line of communication that, Hey, we're doing this on a hunch on a best guess. This may cause more harm than benefit, et cetera, to have, you know, having true informed consent can be really difficult with, with some patients, depending on their level of education and things like that. But, um, you at least got to try in those situations. If you're going to recommend something without data, it's best to not whenever possible. Yeah. The, the beautiful thing about this podcast, uh, is that what I've learned to realize is that we have a bunch of different perspectives of people that come onto this podcast and everyone seems to have a different idea slightly, if at all, of what health is and what preventive medicine is. And I know you already touched on a little bit before with that definition of health, um, being like your self-efficacy or being able to maintain yourself in those different aspects of health, such as like your emotional, physical, and uh, so forth. So with that being said, as well as what you just said about being careful about following the evidence and not doing more harm than good, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, you'll probably get some degree of consensus on the on on that question as far as the idea of reducing the risk of preventable mor morbidity, mortality, helping people live longer, longer, healthier lives. But I think the important thing to recognize when we're talking about preventative uh, uh, interventions or preventative care is that the overwhelming majority of this is going to involve things like health related behaviors and social determinants of health with a very small niche for things like biomedical interventions, screening, testing, uh, drugs, things like that from a preventative standpoint. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it might be sexy for us to go down the route of like, you know, doing more medicine, um, and, and intervening more and doing more things, uh, that we can do when really that should form arguably a much, much, much smaller piece of what this, um, concept is about compared to, uh, promoting, uh, uh, in, you know, established beneficial health related behaviors and recognizing, which I think is an even bigger, uh, issue that is underappreciated, uh, is the, the impact of a lot of these social determinants of health on ultimate health outcomes, things like poverty, isolation, things like that. I mean, there's just paper I shared, I think it was yesterday on the impact of, uh, uh, the, the, the attributable risk of cardiovascular uh, uh, health outcomes attributable to, to poverty itself. So tons of things that we're not doing enough about while we're getting super, super excited to, to check the box on our EMR that we're meeting our preventative uh, 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 testing recommendations to send somebody for a screening intervention that has like a number needed to treat of, you know, a thousand or something like that. So basically I was just saying, yeah, I think one of the, one of the things that Raghav and I thought about when starting this podcast was definitely way more on the side of behavior change and that sort of thing versus testing and all the technology and things that kind of get thrown into preventive medicine. But um, I definitely think that we struggle a lot as a as a healthcare profession to 
either find the time to recommend those things or not have the adequate knowledge base to recommend the right dose of exercise and the right nutrition recommendations and things like that. So I think it ends up being just a cluster of different recommendations, some evidence-based, a lot not evidence-based, and people really don't know where to go because one doctor says this, one doctor says that, and there's not really that, you know, same, I guess, diagnostic and therapeutic requirements to learn the same drugs and the same pharmacology and the same, I guess, more of the quote unquote, like medicine side of things. Yeah. Adding on to that, um, I was going to say that a lot of the things that you talked about in terms of preventive medicine, which are beneficial, like talking about the social determinants of health and um, whatnot that goes into that is a lot harder to do because you have to like address systematic or systemic change. So not systematic. Um, and there's so many different things to address when it comes to that and trying to get people access to better food to like actually exercise. Cause I know we can always say um, just exercise and eat right. But to <laughs> someone that doesn't have like the proper things like in their background to be able to do that safely or effectively or be able to afford food, then it's a lot more difficult to do. And I think a lot of the reasons that, um, a lot of physicians these days talk about preventive health is just kind of that screening thing is because it's easy to do. You kind of just order it. The yeah. patient goes somewhere if they can, or if they can't, it doesn't matter the physician. They just check that box off and say, all right, this person got the screening and they're good to go. Preventive medicine check. Yeah. Yeah. You're totally right. I mean, the stuff that matters is really, really, really hard to do. And the stuff that's easy to do matters very little in comparison. Uh, and, and so, you know, in the course of a busy workday, you know, some, some clinics themselves, the way they're set up, um, pre prevents, uh, presents a, a barrier of its own in terms of how many patients you have to see, how much time you have available, et cetera. Um, so you're right, top to bottom throughout society, um, uh, there are just enormous barriers to this stuff. And that's kind of why um, it's important to... It, it, to the extent that you're going to make comments about the importance of preventive medicine, uh, you probably need to be an advocate on a much larger scale rather than patting yourself on the back for uh, ordering somebody, you know, a, a low dose <laughs> chest CT for their lung cancer screening when that like, barely does anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so kind of piggybacking on the screening idea. So, I mean, you run into screening and, you know, screening versus diagnostic testing all the time. It's something you've you've talked about quite a bit on on some previous podcasts you've done recently. Um, when it comes to teaching your medical students and residents and just teaching the general public and patients and you talk about screening tests, um, what's one thing that you kind of would like to get across to different physicians or just people in general about why the allure of more screening is problematic? Yeah. Um, so I don't know that I can reduce it down to one thing. I can give a, a bit of a spiel, I guess, on the topic and see where it takes us. I think that when I'm working with the, the students and the residents, I think one important point of distinction is difference between diagnosis and screening. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times in the inpatient setting, we're dealing with patients who are presenting with symptoms and we're tasked with trying to figure out a diagnosis and a treatment that can then, you know, uh, alter the, the natural history of that condition. Um, and, and that obviously in, in, in that context, I'm encouraging them, working with them to learn about developing a good differential diagnosis, understanding like Bayesian inference, where they can have an idea of where their pretest probabilities are, what they want to do to alter their post-test probabilities in terms of history, examination, ordering tests, things like that. Having an idea of the test performance characteristics, you don't have to know the exact percentage of sensitivities and specificities and things like that, but having an idea of 
how likely is this test uh, to alter my my thinking and subsequent management in this patient? Um, anticipating your plans at least a couple steps in advance is something that can get that can be really tough to do when you're earlier on in your in your training. And so the idea of hey, you're you want you say you want to order this test. This is an academic institution. I'm okay with letting you order this test if you'd like, but I want you to consider what are you going to do with the information that you get? What if it shows you this? What are you going to do? What if it shows you that? What are you going to do? Are those answers the same? Okay, let's just not do this thing, um, you know, as, as an example. So avoiding shotgun labs, avoiding routine labs that aren't necessarily indicated, you know, a lot of times daily labs just having more numbers to present on rounds seems like you know you have more data you're you're better prepared ordering echoes for uh you know a syncope patient with a normal ekg that doesn't need an echo and then you're going to find stuff that's going to lead to more testing and intervention and then somebody's going to recommend they get q6 monthly echoes for the rest of their life or something um so there's all kinds of consequences uh and again that's just basically conveying the degree of responsibility that they have and the amount of harm that they can do, whether, uh, you know, iatrogenic medical harms or psychological harm, financial harm, et cetera, that you can do to somebody by finding something that didn't need to be found, um, even in the course of a diagnostic workup. When it comes to screening, the, the task that we have is even, uh, uh, even harder because we're looking at asymptomatic individuals in the context of screening. And, Doing things to people who look fine and feel fine, uh, uh, searching for problems under the guise of preventing downstream morbidity and mortality is even harder to do in somebody who has no symptoms, no complaints, um, and overall looks okay. And so in that situation, we need even more evidence of benefit uh, with respect to morbidity and mortality if we're going to be taking what we what it would have been called healthy people and turning them into patients. If you're going to do that, you better have some good evidence behind what you're doing that it's actually going to help the person because in the absence of evidence of benefit, all you have is potential for harm. Um, and so, uh, you know, just a common example, if you go through a general continuity clinic uh, for, for general medicine doing primary care annuals, quote unquote, and uh, they want to do a, an annual CBC on this person, it's like, okay, why? Is there evidence to support annual screening for somebody's white blood cell count and hemoglobin, et cetera? Um, no, you don't need to do that. <laughs> so, so I think, uh, at, you know, the way I approach this in practice with them is um, basically when they want to do something, I ask them to either support what they're doing with evidence or support what they're doing with uh, an explanation of how this is going to alter their subsequent diagnostic reasoning, their subsequent therapeutic plan, et cetera, because there needs to be some tangible benefit to be had by doing a particular test or evaluation. Um, whereas if I ask them how this is going to help either in the current diagnostic process or from a screening standpoint, and I get a shrug, then I'm forced to think that the seesaw is tilted exclusively in the direction of harm here. And so I'm unconvinced that we need to do this. Um, I was, I was going to say, being the academic physician you are, you of course had us do some homework before this episode and uh, both of us read Overdiagnosed, which was honestly a really good book. And I appreciated that you uh, had us read that because it opened my eyes to a lot of things that you're talking about right now and a lot of the problems that we are going to face in medicine more and more um, with the increasing uh, capabilities of technology and so forth. And um, 
one of the things I talk about in that book is really that one of the barriers to prescribing less tests and less screening measures is that they're kind of sold to patients and to physicians saying these are beneficial. So when you look at a patient or when you look at like an ad targeted towards a patient or to the lay public, they see, all right, we can catch um, prosthetic or prostate cancer before it happens and yeah. I'll be saved from cancer, which is yeah. cancer is bad, right? So how do you kind of balance? And then on the other side, uh, when you have physicians that are like on the checkbox model where they can check off that preventive care, it's very alluring just to be able to say, all right, we order this for the patient. So the question here is how do you kind of fight that in a sense or battle the allure of both physicians checking that and then the patients coming to you and saying, hey, I want to make sure I don't have cancer. How do I yeah. This test. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is similar uh, to what we we're discussing earlier. The problem crosses multiple layers and multiple levels here. Obviously, there's the, the understanding among the lay public of cancer, like you said, for as an example of something we screen for cancer is bad. The also the assumption is that uh, early detection is always better. The idea that more information is always better. Um, furthermore, the and, and all of this with respect to cancer is kind of underlined by the assumption that once you have cancer, it will inexorably progress and cause badness down the line, which I think that's probably like the biggest fallacy here. And that just represents a, a, a misunderstanding of, of cancer biology and and uh, the the result of both uh, poor dissemination of this information as well as a lot of like the public health kind of campaigns around cancer and cancer screening are like extremely, extremely, uh, uh, emotionally driven in a lot of, a lot of contexts, right? Cause almost everybody knows somebody who's had cancer and mm -hmm. whether they had a good outcome or not, it's a very challenging, taxing, emotional experience. And then that drives the desire. Oh, that could be me. I need to know, do I have cancer? If I have cancer, that's going to, that's going to progress and it's going to be awful. Um, et cetera. Whereas in reality, uh, just about everybody has cancer in some capacity, i.e. like malignant cells that can crop up here and there, right? And as you guys probably learned in your immunology class, we have this amazing like immune surveillance system that can go through and take care of a lot of those things such that we, to whatever extent we develop unknown uh, uh, pre-malignant or malignant lesions that they can in many cases regress or in other contexts, they may not progress. They may be slow growing indolent lesions that never go on to cause any problems at all. And this is just a reflection of the huge heterogeneity heterogeneity in, in cancer biology as one specific example of something that we screened for. Um, and I think that, you know, people might have a difficult time adequately weighing the risks and the benefits here. So they might say, you know, I don't really care what the harms are of getting this test done. I'm not worried about any of that stuff. If it can find cancer, it'll save my life. The assumption is that if a screening test finds something, then it, then it has therefore worked and it saved your life. And that's another huge uh, fallacy um, because that gets to the idea of overdiagnosis, just diagnosing things that were never destined to cause any morbidity, any mortality, any symptoms at all in many cases. And this is something where looking back through medical history, again, can be very educational and informative if you look through various screening interventions that have been done in the past, uh, such as thyroid cancer screening. There was even, there's been a bunch of uh, screening programs in, in uh, pediatric populations, neonates, um, that have then ultimately led to the, you know, where newborn screening is today. Um, which is more based on evidence than, than it has been in the past. Um, and just a whole bunch of things that we've realized that, Hey, we screened a ton. We found a ton cause that's what screening does, uh, with very highly sensitive tests. You either, you, you catch all the true positives, you catch a bunch of false positives that require subsequent confirmatory evaluation. And, uh, when you catch something, 
you are usually inclined to do something about it, right? Because that's the idea when you're thinking a step ahead with your test. I'm doing this test because if I find something, I'm going to do something about it. And uh, that might involve treatment, that might involve surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, whatever, or ongoing imaging follow-ups for the rest of your life or whatever the case is, whatever plan of plan of action there's going to be. And all of those things can have accumulated harms that ultimately may outweigh any potential benefit in the case of an overdiagnosed case that was never destined to cause any problems. Um, and, and then at the top layer, that's kind of what you're talking about. So there's the, the patient level assumptions about more information always being better, which is definitively not the case. There's uh, kind of clinician understandings of this stuff and then kind of the systemic incentives um, that are that are at play. So an example of this that, that you kind of alluded to was like the checkbox and these quality metrics that somebody might be um, uh, uh, kind of uh, um, their, their practice performance might be evaluated against these quality metrics. And of course, all the quality metrics themselves should be based in evidence, right? They should be like, oh, we have good evidence that if you actually perform better on this, that it'll help patients. Um, but of course, there's that idea that once something, uh, once you start measuring something and that measure itself becomes the target, you might be missing, you might be missing the actual force for the trees there. So um, the, the underlying point here is that a lot of these screening interventions, the clinicians themselves don't even have a good understanding of how much benefit they stand to offer patients compared to the potential harms. And so one way that I like to address this is there are a, a, an increasing number of kind of uh, clinical decision-making tools available that can help to guide these conversations. And they can help to guide them by even producing like visual pictorial uh, 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 illustrations of NNTs and NNHs, for example, uh, because, you know, we'll have for just a, uh, an example that I might come across regularly, we might admit somebody who's in their maybe their late seventies to the hospital for, uh, some COPD exacerbation or something like that. And, uh, the intern might recognize, oh, they have, uh, you know, an iron deficiency anemia and therefore, you know, Obviously, that's colon cancer until proven otherwise, iron deficiency anemia. So they should probably um, undergo this, this diagnostic evaluation. Um, or even if there's not any evidence, they might say, oh, they're due for their next screening. And again, an asymptomatic person where you're not pursuing that diagnostic evaluation. Well, we have patient decision-making tools where we can input all the information, demographic information about this patient, and it can give us a better idea of what are the odds that this patient actually benefits from undergoing that sort of an evaluation compared to what are the odds that they um, are more likely to be harmed. And almost universally, whenever I prompt them to go through that exercise using one of these tools, like the uh, like the UCSF uh, e-prognosis tool, um, their jaws drop at the end. They're like, oh, wow, uh, I wouldn't do this if I were the patient. And I'm like, that's exactly what I want you to be thinking about. What would you do if you were in this situation? What would you want your parent to do if they were in this situation? Um, because it's really easy to tell a patient, just go do this. Um, but when you actually are faced with those kind of benefit and harm trade-offs, what would you actually do? Uh, and, and very often they end up realizing, oh, we have a lot more potential to harm this person than to help them. Maybe this isn't the best idea from a preventative standpoint if our goal is to actually you know, promote quality of life, quantity of life, uh, uh, health span, things like that. Makes sense. And I think one of the things that stood out the most in that book, and we've had a lot of conversations like this, Austin, where basically it's, you know, if a cure is necessary, is it possible? And if it's possible, is it necessary? Right. So I think like you were talking about, I think so many people have this maybe false idea that, 
we can cure everything that we can catch early. Right. So it's like, well, if we catch this cancer, like we use the example of cancer earlier, if we catch it earlier, we'll be able to treat it better. And that's a lot of the times not the case. Um, and cancers that we can catch earlier, things that we can catch early, a lot of times don't benefit the patient to treat early, um, until they become symptomatic and things that, you know, we would like to be able to catch early are the things that we currently aren't able to catch early or don't have good treatments, even if we catch them early. So I think there tends to be this, this, I guess, error in the mind of the patient that, well, if I find it, they'll be able to treat it. And then also the error of commissioning a commission on the side of the physicians of, well, I need to do more for this patient, not less. So what more can I do to help them, you know, do things or prevent things? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, even culturally, this is kind of, uh, ingrained in, in the process. So, so, uh, I might have a, a student or an intern presenting a, a, a situation on rounds and they come up with their problem list and every problem they go through the questions, all right, what's your plan for that? And that there's kind of like an implication there of like, you need to be doing something about that. Whereas ideally it's like, it's perfectly okay to say, I don't think this needs intervention. Um, but there's this, this jump to, I want to make sure I want to come across as being very on top of things. I want to have a plan for every problem this person has. Whereas like maybe most of them, you can just like let it ride and they'll be okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think from uh, a lot of what we just discussed right now may apply more to physicians and clinicians and people with like a background in this though. So let's say I'm like a general lay person coming in who wants to get a whole body scan because whole body, <laughs> scans let me know whatever's going on in the body right <laughs> and then i can find out if i have something going on in my chest something in my legs whatever so i know and then uh in one of our previous podcasts with dr john white from uh, webmd he talked about communication and how that's one of the biggest aspects of preventive medicine and being able to communicate what you know and the proper knowledge to the patient so what do you tell a patient like how do you communicate it to them so that they understand if they want to get a whole body scan yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll preface this by saying I never jump to tell people things. Uh, that's, that's never going to be the first step in this situation. The first step when they say that is going to be, tell me why, tell me where you got this idea from. Tell me what you know about this. That's almost always, I mean, across all the contexts that I'm in, whether it's a outpatient consultation, inpatient consultation, a coaching situation, the, the idea is first, I want to elicit where they're at so that I can commute, I can reflect back to them. You know, I'm paying attention to the words they use, the language they speak. I try to get a sense of their education level. I try to get a sense of where this came from so that I can address them kind of at their level. Um, and so maybe they just said, oh, I saw this highway billboard sign to get full body MRIs or something like that. And so I thought it'd be a great idea. Well, that gives me one avenue. Right, right. So that gives me one avenue that I can start going down as far as, um, you know, the potential, uh, the, the potential benefits of that, the potential risks of that, and kind of where this trade-off ultimately shakes out. Um, whereas if they got told it by another doctor or, uh, by, you know, another trusted friend who maybe went, maybe, maybe they heard it from a friend who went through it and they found something. Um, there's a whole lot of ways that, um, you can get your foot in the door in these conversations, but, just jamming your foot through the door right off the bat is never the right way to go when you're having these conversations. So always start out by eliciting uh, what their uh, what their initial understanding is and using that to, to work through it. Um, and then from there, you know, basically, I would I would aim to enlighten them or to help them understand that um, there are potential harms to this. 
And that for people who feel fine searching for every abnormality in their body, the idea of not wanting to miss anything means you end up catching everything. Uh, and just because you catch everything, a lot of it is probably going to be of, of no consequence and helping them understand that our bodies are, are pretty remarkable things. They can take care of themselves in a lot of ways, right? Like just the physiology involved in like maintaining your own normal sodium level is uh, is pretty impressive. That's it. That's that's going on there. And so a lot of these things, just because we catch it doesn't mean that we need to do anything about it, that people aren't fundamentally broken um, or, or that they don't have dangerous, ominous things going on under the hood because a lot of people use these kind of like me mechanical type analogies to describe things. Um, and, and so I think that I would start with that and then to uh, to uh, establish some confidence in the shared plan, I would actually follow that up with recommendations for the things that do work rather than just dismissing them and saying, nah, we're not going to do that go home rather saying, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily the best, uh, thing that we can do for you here, but here are the things that are likely to give you the most benefit. Um, for example, and there are, you know, a small handful of things that would be very strongly recommended from a screening preventative standpoint that we can do so that you're establishing a plan that is based in evidence and you're demonstrating to them that you understand where they're coming from with their concerns about the potential for future disease and death. And here are the things that we know that we can do to, to provide you with benefit. Roger, do you have a comment? I just didn't want to cut you off there. Yeah. And you look like you, look like was, you wanted to say something. Thing. I was, yeah, I was going to, I was going to build that into the next part of this where we were talking a lot about how we want to educate the patient, um, both from a, I guess, educate the patient and other physicians on the benefits and harms of screening and um, different ideas when it goes to preventive medicine in that regard. But you also touched on educating patients, which has to do with a lot of what Jason and I talk about, uh, both amongst ourselves and with other uh, guests, is that we want to build a resilient patient population where they have a high self-image or high self-efficacy of themselves, which is also what we talked about with our uh, model of health. So um, with that, why is it so important that physician or not uh, physician patients are educated and have a high self-efficacy? Like why is it uh, important to have a self uh, high narrative in a sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the narratives that we build around health and around various health conditions have enormous consequence uh, downstream. And this is definitely something that is that is underappreciated across a lot of fields. I'll say if you're ending up in, in PM&R, that, that's one where this can be problematic in a lot of cases, uh, just pain, pain medicine in general, it can be really problematic in this context. Um, but yeah, if you, I think you can look across just about every medical condition or every medical scenario, and there actually is a, a, an enormous body of evidence on the importance or, uh, of self-efficacy and the association of it with better outcomes. When patients feel like they have the skills, the strategies, the knowledge, the ability to take care of themselves um, in various conditions, outcomes are going to be better compared to the opposite, which is more of a learned helplessness scenario. Medical dependence, uh, things like that are situations that tend to result in much worse outcomes. So we definitely want to promote that to the, whatever extent uh, uh, is possible and giving people things that they can feel more in control of to kind of guide their own, uh, chart their own path uh, throughout uh, times of, of suffering, disease, things like that. Um, but definitely, I mean, patients listen to us. Um, they listen to us more than we think. It's easy to get jaded um, and say, uh, this patient's never going to do what I tell them to do, even though that's not the way to go about this kind of conversation. But people listen to it. We're, we are held in a position of authority more than we can appreciate in a lot of times. And on top of that, again, we took this oath to do no harm. We do systematically tend to overestimate our benefits and underestimate our harms. 
um, uh, with, with respect to the, the things that we can do and offer to our patients. And one of the biggest places where we underestimate our harms is, is our use of language with people. Uh, the language we use around certain conditions itself can really set people up for success or failure. And I would not say that that is an exaggeration or an overstatement based on a lot of the available evidence, particularly in the in the pain musculoskeletal uh, rehabilitation world, where the language that's used when discussing certain patient conditions, it can set them up for a lifetime of disability, uh, fear avoidance, behavior, kinesiophobia, things like that. Um, on the other hand, uh, more optimistic uh, language um, and discussions of patients' conditions in a way that does tend to promote more of this self-advocacy gives them a, a, a role to play in their own health. That tends to flip things in the other direction. People tend to uh, have much better outcomes uh, from this, even if their pain intensity, uh, maybe, maybe if, even if they continue to live with some degree of pain, we don't get their pain score to zero because oftentimes that's an, that's an unrealistic target. They're able to live better in the face of that discomfort. They're able to engage with life, do the things they want to do, not lose their sense of self and, and autonomy, um, as, as a human. Um, and this extends not just in the pain rehabilitation world, but across a whole host of other uh, uh, situations as well. And there's ample uh, evidence of this as well. Um, even, you know, one example when I'm talking about the pain uh, uh, conversation, like low back pain being as hugely prevalent as it is, there's even data on, you know, just rewording radiology reports, right? Whereas mm -hmm. instead of saying severe multi-level degenerative disc disease, right, saying, age-related changes. When you're having the conversation about this with the patient itself can change their whole conception of what's going on with themselves, whether they're fragile, whether they're about to go, walk outside and be paralyzed by turning the wrong way, or whether they can continue to move because that's kind of an expected finding maybe in somebody who's 75 years old or something like that. Um, so definitely an underappreciated thing. And when I am rounding with, with teams, um, and we're and, um, always getting them to sit down at the bedside and sit at the patient's eye level and have these kind of conversations with them. I'm listening just as intently to what the student or the intern or the resident is saying and how they're saying it as I am to what the patient's saying. And then we debrief after we leave the room to say, you noticed how you said this particular phrase. I would have said it this way. I would have explained it a little bit differently, um, et cetera, so that we can kind of nudge them in the right direction over time. So with, with that being said, I think it's like you said, I think one of the things that patients take away from their, their visits to the doctor, whether for screening or for, you know, symptomatic diagnosis, whatever, is a change in the view of self, right? So if you end up with, you know, you come to the doctor with shortness of breath, whatever, the symptoms of heart failure, and you get diagnosed with heart failure, guess what? Your view of yourself just changed. Yeah. Because you went from, well, I thought it was a healthy 50 something year old person to now I carry this big diagnosis that sounds scary and has probably large implications on my not only quantity of life, but my quality of life. Um, so I think in terms of screening and the terms and diagnosis we give people, we need to be very careful about what impact that's going to put on how they view themselves. But saying that, do you think that a person's narrative like of themselves can, can in a way be preventive? If I think, well, I'm a pretty resilient person, I can handle a lot. Is that, do you think that's something that actually goes into preventive medicine in terms of, a, of the way a person views themselves and their health? Or is that kind of just a little bit wishy-washy? I think, I mean, I see examples of that pretty frequently, uh, where, where people's narratives, self, self concept, their self advocacy, things like that can, can influence their own subsequent behaviors, their degree to which they end up using the healthcare system and therefore the degree to which they're exposed to the risks of the healthcare system. Right. So that, you know, so I, 
in my coaching side of things, when I'm coaching uh, uh, athletes and things like that, very frequently nowadays, after I've been coaching people, I have several people I've been coaching for like, you know, seven or eight years. And, um, and uh, one of them might tell me, oh, yeah, I, uh, I had, so, I, I tweaked my back like two or three weeks ago. Um, it happened, I was having pretty severe back pain for a few days, but I knew what to do. I knew how to take care of it. And I just didn't bother telling you, I just fixed it myself. And now here we are. So we're, we're back on track. And I'm like, that is amazing. That is awesome. Um, that like makes my day versus a situation where it's a very different situation. When I have somebody who say, says I tweaked my back, uh, I was worried that I was going to be paralyzed. So I went to an ER, uh, I went on, underwent a stat MRI for my acute nonspecific low back pain. And then, you know, the, the, they consulted a surgeon who told me I was going to need to get a, a spine surgery within the next five years if I don't stop lifting or something like that. Right. So those are two drastically different scenarios and, and the, the two different ways that this plays out can have huge implications. On one hand, I have somebody who is high degree of self-efficacy, high degree of, of confidence in their ability to self-manage this condition. And they took care of it in normal, you know, uh, kind of the normal natural history of acute nonspecific low back pain, for example, resolving in a, in a couple of weeks, um, compared to the other person who not only did they not have that confidence, they had a lot of fear, uh, uh, anxiety about the issue. They pursued the immediate medical evaluation, which itself is not inherently bad, right? If you don't know what to do, it's okay to do that. But then that's when they get exposed to the harms of the medical system, uh, potentially if you're seeing people who don't necessarily know how to manage this condition in an, uh, in an evidence-based fashion. Um, of course, you know, if you show up to an ER, their rule, hundred percent sensitivity for bad things, I'm going to try to find anything that's bad. Um, but then at the same time, how do you have the conversation with the patient when you don't find anything that's bad? Um, and, and that's what can then alter their, their life trajectory. Maybe they're like, Oh, I can never lift anything again. Cause I had back pain once, um, that, that has huge implications because now automatically they're no longer able to meet current physical activity guidelines because they can't do resistance training can't from their own uh, perspective now they no longer feel they can do that and maybe because they feel like they can't uh, do that uh, then they uh, de they self-select for a decreased level of physical activity they might gain some weight they might develop sleep apnea they might de develop fatty liver cardiovascular disease um, they might develop all kinds of medical downstream complications that were if you back up, um, attributable to the narratives that they had about things that they experienced. I see this actually quite commonly, um, in some of the military population that, that we see people who get out and maybe they have some, some back pain and they're told that they have like disc degeneration. And so they can't exercise quote unquote. And then later on, you're seeing them in the, uh, you know, in the cardiology clinic for their AFib that's due to sleep apnea. You're seeing them in the hepatology clinic for their fatty liver disease. You're seeing them in, in various other places, developing these medical complications that were, when you look back, potentially avoidable through some of this stuff, because maybe the condition that they were told they had was not a contraindication to ongoing activity, but the way that it was framed and explained to them painted it as such. Um, and that's just an example of like an underappreciated harm of, of the language and the narratives that we use around this stuff. Yeah. You straight up like took the words right out of my mouth as the downward spiral, as you were describing as a yeah. patient that, uh, they get told something or they have a very minor injury. And next thing you know, they're like, all right, I can't squat anymore. Um, I can't do any exercise anymore. Otherwise I'm going to break my knee. I'm going to pop open my like uh, disc, <laughs> in my lower back, whatever happens. And then a lot of times it's that downward spiral. If they don't exercise, they get scared to exercise. And then whatever intensity they do, oh, they used to have in their exercises 
completely thrown out the window. So it's definitely a difficult line. And it's also a very narrow line between when a patient has a very high self-efficacy or if they're like right on the line of like that higher self-efficacy and lower where they could easily become a very medicalized patient or they could be like a resilient patient as we're mm-hmm. talking about. And Jason and I are both of the mindset of that. We think preventive medicine is a lot about setting the patient up for success so that mm-hmm. they can do a lot of things themselves yeah. and not necessarily need the healthcare system. Obviously the healthcare system is great at what it does in certain aspects, but as you're talking about, it also can do a lot of harm. So you want to have that uh, balance where the patient is able to do a lot for themselves and be able to utilize the healthcare system when needed. Yeah. And a lot of that comes with having that positive self image with, if they're able to build that up through like over time of like little wins is what I talk about a lot of little wins together. They have a high self image and they can kind of figure things out for themselves and know when to use a healthcare system versus kind of just relying on it and then reading those billboards and saying, Oh, maybe I should get this uh, full body MRI. Yeah. One way that I've seen this discussed that, that I really liked was the idea of, you know, you may be familiar with the idea of universal precautions, like in the hospital with respect to, you know, hand washing and hygiene and things like that. And so one example would be, you know, let's say somebody shows up with an acute pain related issue, just applying universal precautions to everybody that you see in that scenario in the sense of treating them as if they are somebody who can progress to like a persistent debilitating pain state. In other words, doing everything you can to avert that that clinical trajectory um, uh, early on rather than uh, just treating them, you know, maybe blowing the issue off or something. And then if they do end up progressing, then you're in, you know, in a a much deeper hole to try to dig yourself out of with that person. Um, So universal precautions with respect to treating everybody as if they could progress to being more dependent on the healthcare system and doing what you can to avert that earlier on is, is uh, probably a good move. So with all this being said about kind of keeping people out of hospitals, I think one of the things we would all agree that is a big part of that is exercise. I mean, one of the strongest recommendations we can give people is exercise. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of even clinicians don't realize is that the current guidelines for exercise are relatively robust in terms of um, the amount of resistance training they're recommending and the amount of uh, vigorous exercise or moderate intensity cardiovascular exercise. It's a pretty robust amount of exercise. And I think, um, or I guess I should say, do you think that we do a pretty poor job of explaining to patients that hard exercise is something you should be striving for? Yeah. So I think that this is a, definitely a, a, nuanced conversation, as we'd say. Um, the, I, I, was waiting, I was waiting for you to drop that word. <laughs> I agree that the amount is, is pretty substantial. So, you know, 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity, 75 to 150 minutes of, high, of vigorous intensity and two to three resistance uh, training days per week. Um, that's a lot of work for, for most people. And I think that, you know, it is definitely there's a, a large and robust body of evidence that if we can achieve those as minimums, then we can have enormous uh, health uh, implications um, and benefits for people. However, I think that it's also important to recognize that there's no minimum threshold for benefit here either. There is uh, no minimum threshold at all, and there's a a dose response effect with respect to the training volume that you do. So you can start out with a little and get a pretty substantial amount of benefit, and as that volume dose increases, you get incremental benefits over time. Um, Definitely, I think that clinicians' ability to confidently converse on this stuff is, is pretty poor overall across the board, including most primary care folks, um, their ability to deliver this information in an effective way, you know, i.e. using effective behavior change techniques is pretty poor. Of course, it's also limited by the time they have available and things like that. Um, how, how often do patients ever schedule appointments with the primary care doctor just to discuss exercise? Like, that never, never, they don't do that. <laughs> um, and so you're always forced to be cramming that in maybe at the end of a visit 
after you've discussed either a chief complaint or if no complaints, there are other, you know, multi morbidities or their screenings or whatever, uh, things that are potentially of lesser significance to their ultimate health outcomes compared to exercise. But that's kind of the, the world we live in right now. Um, so I definitely think that there are communication issues, but there are problems at multiple other, other, uh, levels uh, here. And, and, and I do think that, um, Similarly to our conversation earlier, by starting out by trying to elicit where the patient is, uh, can be more effective so that you can deliver them the information in a way that A, they can understand, and it can be a realistic starting point for them. So if you have a 65-year-old person with a few comorbidities who's never done anything physical in their entire life, giving them a piece of paper with these physical activity guidelines is equally effective as putting that piece of paper in the trash. Like it's not <laughs> going to do anything. Um, whereas eliciting where they're at, uh, what their goals are, what they're able to do and proposing some specific things that they can do rather than just general things like move more. Like, what does that even mean? Um, so I think there's, there are just so many ways that we can improve the way we deliver this message. It needs to be individualized hundred percent of the time. Uh, based on their baseline abilities, their tolerance, their goals, their preferences, things like that. Um, and, and there may be some patients who just straight up say, I'm not interested in doing this. And then that becomes a process that you might work on over time. They, tr they teach you guys in, in school. They taught, ta taught me same way. If you have somebody who, you know, is, is, uh, uh, actively smoking and they say, I'm not interested. What do you do? You bring it up the next time. You don't just say, ah, screw it. This person's never going to quit smoking. You just keep doing it because the benefits are so huge. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to, for some reason we get, uniquely jaded about, uh, the ability to actually, uh, uh, elicit behavior change with respect to exercise, even though the evidence base we have on this says that we can change behavior, but you have to view it as an intervention that has its own unique number needed to treat just like anything else. In other words, maybe it might take, if you, if you really suck at this stuff, maybe your <laughs> NNT for exercise related behavior change is like 500. You counsel 500 people, you might get one to actually change their behavior. <laughs> Whereas if you are really, really good at this, maybe you can work that NNT down to, you know, 20, 15, maybe 10 or something like that. That'd be super impressive is if you can uh, have a potentially even lower uh, by how many people you need to counsel before you can get one to change their behavior, even if a little bit, because again, there's no minimum threshold and there's a volume based dose response uh, to, to the benefits over time. Mm -hmm. And that comes that comes down a lot to once again, uh, currently where the system's at, because if you we talked about this in another podcast as well, where the incentives are, because getting a patient to change their behavior regarding exercise and nutrition is pretty difficult to do if they're especially if they're like resistant to it. It's and it takes a lot of time. Yeah, it's very time intensive. And if you go to like one of those ICD-10 codes, it's not really on there because it prefers interventions, right? So the amount of time that physician has to spend to get a patient to do that is kind of not balanced how much compensation they get out of it, which is one of the major problems that um, hopefully gets fixed by the time we get further on in our careers. But I think that would be huge. Yeah, I, I think so too. And and the other thing that may end up emerging from this, and, and this is something that you already see in some primary care clinics with respect to nutrition, for example, is that there may be a dietitian in the clinic and that they can function as a part of a multi-modality, you know, multi-specialty multi, modality, multi team because it might not be feasible or realistic or even it might not even be the right idea for a physician to be doing this counseling exclusively because um, basically you want everybody in the clinic to be practicing to like the top of their like level of training and their, yep. and their yep. uh, uh, license uh, uh, in terms of scope. And that might not be the best use of a physician's time in a situation where you might have access to somebody who can do that counseling uh, effectively on their own and may have more time to, to devote to it. So there are, you know, growing uh, uh, aspects to this 
um, kind of multi uh, specialty, multidisciplinary care, where maybe there is going to ultimately end up being, uh, you know, a dietitian who can handle that piece, maybe an, an, an extra somebody who's like an exercise counselor, whatever title you might want to give them, who can help to uh, facilitate that side of things. Um, and that might, uh, I, I would expect that that would uh, become more prevalent when the incentives align to facilitate that, of course. I agree. I think one of the things as well that currently seems to be a barrier, but hopefully, I, I guess, as um, social media and other outlets such as, you know, you guys at Barbell Medicine spread a message of, you know, exercise and nutrition and things that are actually important. Um, there seems to be a disconnect between like you, I guess I would say like personal trainers or fitness people and physicians in terms of, you know, physicians get frustrated because so-and-so this personal trainer with 1 million followers is selling some sort of, you know, bullshit product. Uh, but then a lot of, you know, personal trainers are like, well, the, the doctor doesn't know anything about nutrition or exercise or whatever. So, you know, how do you, in your mind, what do you think the steps are towards bridging that gap between, okay, we have fitness professionals who know how and what to recommend and physicians who trust them to make those recommendations and vice versa. How do you see that playing out in the next decade or so? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I see a ton of progress being made on that front in the next decade. might be a, a longer period of time, but that that's a reflection on my own views on a lot of things. But um, but I, I mean, I think that it's easy to, to pick out uh, examples of, of bad apples like that. Um, there are people who uh, espouse uh, non-evidence-based or, or outright harmful information all over the place. And so that does not, uh, that, that even includes physicians. I mean, physicians like to hate on a lot of other groups or specialties or, you know, say they might, uh, they might, um, mock a lot of forms of complementary and alternative medicine. And by no means am I a huge fan of those things. But at the same time, if you're going to be doing that, I would expect that you're at least practicing in a pretty, uh, evidence-based fashion. And when we look at how often clinicians actually adhere to clinical practice guidelines on a lot of things, the big, the biggest example being low back pain, um, they're doing a horrible job of it. They're, they're by no means, you know, they're sending all kinds of patients for early imaging, a tiny minority of them are getting physical therapy, a huge proportion of them are getting early opioids, all this stuff. And it's like, that's just as bad. That's, that's arguably in many situations worse than what a lot of the complementary and alternative medicine practitioners are doing. Um, and, and I would, I would prefer that none of that be happening. Um, but really I think it's probably unhelpful to single out those kinds of like bad actors in the space. I think that overall, um, most people in medicine, most people in the personal training world are, are, you know, working to try to try to help people. But of course, that's not to say that most people in the personal training world are aware of the current physical activity guidelines either. They might just be doing things that make people really sore. They might throw something at somebody that's wildly inappropriately dosed and land them in my ER with rhabdo or something like that. They um, might do Murph so, twice in one day. I mean, if you're just a total <laughs> idiot, you might do something like that. <laughs> So, um, so I think that there is a large, uh, gap to be bridged there, but I, I don't think that that's something that can be forced on like a, a national level or something like that I think it's going to be a more of a local f uh, phenomenon needs to be done, you know, through building relationships. And if I had to guess that would probably need to involve the trainers going to the physicians than the other way around. I don't envision physicians going out and seeking out trainers that they can refer to. But if you're, uh, if you're a personal trainer and you feel, you know, com comfortable and confident with what you're doing, 
then building relationships with physicians is probably going to be a good idea going in that direction. The only caveat is that, of course, who, what kind of people are the physicians seeing? They might be seeing people with multiple medical comorbidities that you need to be comfortable dealing with in your training practice. I'll say that most medical conditions don't need a ton of fancy, unique, uh, you know, exercise programming or monitoring or something like that. But of course, some of them do have some, some special considerations. That's the direction I see this kind of heading is I think that more people in the training space need to be building relationships with physicians because unlikely that it's going to happen the other way around. <laughs> Makes sense. I know you hate yeah, that. We break, are. But. <laughs> we've talked about, uh, we've talked about a lot of amazing things on this podcast. I'm sure we could talk on for like another hour, two hours, three hours with the way the discussion's going. Several, but we're several at, years. Like I've talked with Jason. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But in the interest of uh, time and with respect to your time, we're going to bring it to the last classic question, which based on the discussion, you will likely hate because it's very reductionist. But if, um, if you have two minutes, you're waiting for your Starbucks and someone comes up to you, you're like, Hey, you're uh, Dr. Baraki, right? How do I get healthy? What do you say to them? Oh, okay. So, so in this, in this situation, they're actually asking me how to be healthy. Then when I yes. saw the initial question is like, how do you tell people how to be healthy? And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't do that. <laughs> uh, you don't go out and force this stuff down people's throats. But if somebody asked, uh, uh how they could, uh, be healthier, really, I'm going to spend those two minutes on what I view as kind of like the highest yield targets to use a phrase that you guys are going to be <laughs> intimately, intimately familiar with, uh, around boards time. Right. So, um, I think those are going to have to be the nutrition piece and, and the exercise piece, um, above just about anything else. I'm certainly not going to spend those two minutes talking about getting health screenings done and things like that. But <laughs> if I can get them from an exercise standpoint, what are my goals? Well, of course I want to get them doing something. Uh, because again, I'm not going to just spit out the exercise guidelines at them because I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know what their start, where, where, where their starting point is and what they're willing to do. But what I am, what I do think I can get people to do is do some chair sit to stands every single day, if not multiple times a day, if they're willing to do it with some added load, hold a, hold a milk jug or something like that. And, and the reason why I just emphasize, I like focusing on that is because the, the worst case scenario outcome for me in terms of physical disability and frailty is the person who I end up seeing in the hospital who ends up going to a nursing home. Because uh, as you mentioned, the downward spiral, they go there, they end up with, you know, decubitus ulcers, they end up with C. diff, they end up with all kinds of other problems, they get sent back, and then back and forth and back and forth until they die. Mm -hmm. um, so if I can keep people out of uh, these, uh, if, uh, keep them living independently, even if they are not in perfect shape, but if they can live independently and get up out of a chair and take care of themselves, um, then that's an enormous, that's like 80% of what I can do for somebody from an exercise standpoint. The rest is, you know, reducing downstream morbidity from, from other accumulating medical conditions. Um, and that's really my threshold is if you can get out of a chair, uh, then you have the requisite strength to be able to take care of yourself. You can get off the toilet and get out of a chair. When you can't do that, that's when you end up in a sniff. So my exercise recommendation, I might spend the first minute working on getting them to understand the importance of doing repeat chair sit to stands as those get easy. They can add weight, pick an arbitrary set and rep scheme, do that every day, um, for the rest of your life, basically. So um, five by five. Sure. That's fine. Because <laughs> presumably a lot of people that I see are doing none and I test patients out in the hospital all the time and they can't get out of a chair once or they can't do it without using their arms. And that is just a reflection of weak hip, hip musculature. And that is the highway to highway to the nursing home. So uh, I prefer that not happen. The second minute, I suppose, uh, is probably going to be spent speaking on nutrition. And there are obviously a whole boatload of different targets that you can select here. I think if I had to, to pick one that I would focus on with most of the, uh, uh population in the developed world, it's going to be to eat more plants. Um, I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. 
And I could just as easily say, I want you to eat more protein. I want you to eat more fiber. I want you to eat less saturated fat uh, from animal foods or something like that. But I think that uh, if I could, if we could get more of the uh, population here to eat more uh, the fruit and fruit and vegetable, um, that would hopefully a displace a lot of other less beneficial things from their diet. It would increase their nutrient intake probably compared to a more uh, refined processed diet. It would increase their fiber intake, which itself can protect against other harmful components in the diet. Um, and uh, I think that's probably one of the bigger bangs for our buck that we can get because, uh, you know, I, I'm, and I'm likely more likely to, to make an impact by asking them to do that compared to just t- telling them to eat less if they, uh, if they are carrying some excess body fat or something like that, because that's really difficult to do as well and takes a longer conversation than you have there. So those are probably the two big things that I would aim to get some biggest bang for my buck, uh, out of people in a, in a two minute conversation like that. And that was the most internal medicine, two minutes we could go down hyponatremia if you want to. Yeah. Austin, we'll have your socials like all over this when we post it on YouTube and whatnot, but yeah. where do you want people to find you? What do you want people to know about you? Oh, um, you know, I'm, I'm out there. I'm not hard to find. Uh, yeah. So you can find most of my stuff at barbellmedicine.com, uh, Instagram, uh, Austin underscore barbell medicine. And I'm fairly active on Twitter, not as much of an original tweeter so much as I am of uh, all the stuff that I read, which is what informs a lot of the stuff that I talk about. I save and retweet there. So uh, people who uh, seem to just follow me to be able to see what I'm see what I'm reading and kind of keep up with that. So I'm just at Austin Baraki there too. And for those of you who are listening to this, um, if you find us on YouTube or through the show notes, then you'll be able to find all the links to that. So it'll be easily accessible. So thanks for coming on to the podcast. It was an excellent conversation. Uh, we both thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, man. Enjoyed talking to you guys, too. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at Prevent Podcast. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time.